0: Continue in our Advent series. A brief hiatus from our exposition of Colossians to look again at another hymn uh, written for us to contemplate, consider, reflect upon. Advent. Good hymns, those marked by sound theology and a fitting match of text and music, have endured because they are timeless and because they are based on scriptural truth. God rest you, merry gentlemen. Fits the description of a good hymn. For that reason, it will be our guide in considering yet another angle on this important. Season of reflection, we call Advent. We will begin our study of God, Rest You, Mary, gentlemen, by reading a verse that fuels the sentiment behind this hymn. Hear God's Word, Matthew 1 20 through 23. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Let us pray. Lord, we are so thankful for the clarity of your word, for just the the depth of its teaching, how for thousands of years something was forecasted and promised and yet we are able to see the fulfillment of that promise in the birth of Christ recorded for us here by Matthew and also by Luke and the other writers of scripture acknowledging how you brought these things to pass. But Lord, I pray that the bridge would be, uh, a bridge would be made, that the gap would be filled between what happened there and out there and you know, how it means something personal to us. Lord, even if this morning it's about contemplating the depth of what it means that Jesus would take on flesh to free his people from their sins. Lord, we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Definitely, tis the season for schmaltzy, mushy holiday movies, programs, and songs, right? My wife kind of calls me an Ebenezer Scrooge sometimes because of my outlook on these things. The commercialization is what I'm reacting to, not the opportunity to celebrate a season of reflection upon Christ. You all know what I'm talking about, Uh, the movies that show up every year, and no, every time a bell rings, angels don't get their wings, and all these kinds of things that when I listen to, I just feel like there's noise coming down on me, and I can't hear. I go in the mall, and I hear these songs, I go this place or that place, and there's all this discussion about everything but what Christmas is actually about. And it causes me to think and reflect upon things uh, like Christmas hymns and the depth that is found therein. But before I go there, let's just think about what people, what comes to their mind today and this day when they think of Christmas or the way we talk about Christmas. Now, I won't pick on the Santa Claus songs. I won't pick on the Rudolph songs. I won't pick uh, on those songs that don't particularly name Christmas. Uh, Christmas, but the ones that do say something about how we're supposed to feel about Christmas. How about Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas? One of my favorites. Let your heart be light. From now on, our troubles will be out of sight. Have yourself a Merry Little Christmas. Make the Yuletide gay. From now on, our troubles will be miles away. Just like that. <laughs> Silver bells. Christmas makes you feel emotional. I didn't know these are the words, but these are the words. Get this. Christ- Christmas makes you feel emotional. It may bring parties or thoughts devotional. Whatever happens or what may be, here is what Christmas time means to me city sidewalks, busy sidewalks, dressed in holiday style. In the air, there's a feeling of Christmas. That's what it means to that person. How about it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas? It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Soon the bells will start, and the thing that will make them ring is the carol that you will sing right within your heart. Aw. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. Now you know why my wife calls me Ebenezer, okay? I'm not done by humbugging yet. There's one other. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas, just like the ones I used to know. And Nathan and I, my parents, we used to know white Christmases. They don't have them here. As such, they have them usually some other time once and Christmas rarely falls in that time, where treetops glisten and children listen, Wow, <laughs> to hear sleigh bells in the snow i 'm dreaming of a white Christmas with every Christmas card I write. May your days be merry and bright, and may all your Christmases be white. Notice some of the reoccurring themes: uh, Let your heart be light, your troubles will be out of sight. Uh, Your troubles will be miles away. Christmas makes you feel emotional. It brings parties or thoughts devotional. In the air, there's a feeling of Christmas. The thing that will make them ring is the carol that you sing right within your heart. With every Christmas card I write, may your days be merry and bright, and may all your Christmases be white. Now, these songs and many, many others exemplify really a cheesy sentimentalism that has been attached to what has generically now been labeled the holidays. Now, even the root meaning of holiday, which literally is holy day, has been obscured by our desire for the warm, fuzzy, and almost escapist emotions and mushy, sappy feelings. Once again, in this third week of Advent, we have opportunity to gain a true understanding of the significance of Christmas through a great hymn that gets the focus right and offers a true a true opportunity to experience comfort and joy instead of superficial temporal sensations that may come from eggnog and Christmas cookie exchanges but are not the real thing. I warn you that the message of God rest you merry gentlemen has nothing to do with Santa Claus, silver bells, white Christmases, or chestnuts roasting. The message of this hymn is the same message of Scripture in light of sin's absolute hold on us. Christ is the only true source for comfort and joy. The story of the hymn is unknown. We don't know who the author is. But doing some research, around 1800, there's a reference to some of the exact lyrics by a person who's writing an article. Then in 1820, there's another reference by another writer to the words of this hymn. Where we know for sure uh, it is in circulation, is by the time Charles Dickens writes A Christmas Carol in 1843. Now, if you've seen the play, you remember one scene where the Christmas carolers come to old Ebenezer's door. By the way, I never shut the door on a Christmas caroler. Ebenezer opens the door, and they sing the first two lines of God, rest you merry gentlemen, and he closes the door on them. It makes them go away. So by 1843, the song was in circulation. And then in 1882, a guy named uh, A.H. Bulin wrote that it was the most popular of all Christmas carols. It's really amazing that such a great hymn, clearly not written more than 200 years ago, or just a little more than that, has no clear author. I like what one, uh, what one hymnologist says about this. He writes, Like the oldest and best worship liturgies, this song is no one's personal property. Time and usage having wiped away nearly all distracting fingerprints of authorship and originality. Instead, it belongs to all of us. Now concerning the tune, there were at least eight different tunes. This is one of the eight that really just took hold and it's the one we use. and really matches the mood of the music very well, as you'll see. But most importantly, what message is this hymn delivering? Is it scriptural? How can it be applied to us? Well, I think the application of the hymn, uh, the hymn's message that is, comes mainly in the form of contemplation that will hopefully, hopefully affect the way you live. Lives of gratitude for what God has done in Christ are changed. Look at the first verse because I believe it sets the tone for the entire hymn. God rest you merry gentlemen let nothing you dismay remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray o tidings of comfort and joy comfort and joy tidings of comfort and joy notice very closely that the first line is correctly God rest you merry gentlemen the comma is important it's often thought of as God rest you, merry gentlemen. In other words, give rest to some happy guys. That's not what it's about. No matter how much eggnog they drank, that's not what we're talking about. God rest you, merry gentlemen. May God give you rest in merriment, in happiness, and enjoy, joy, gentlemen and gentlewomen. God rest you, merry. May God do this work. That's, it's a prayer asking God to complete something. God, rest you, Mary, gentlemen. Please note, the hymn is totally honest about what is required, though, for us to experience rest. It doesn't give us sentimentalism. It doesn't give us any of these things that describe a lot of the popular songs I just spoke of. Instead, look at the words in the first verse. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day. You can't experience merriment, true merriment, or happiness or joy without understanding... That Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day. Why? To save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Whoa, Satan? What happened to the silver bells, the jingle bells, Santa coming to town, and the chestnuts roasting? Why so serious? Satan? What about have yourself a merry little Christmas? Let your heart be light from now on. Our troubles will be out of sight. Well, our troubles will not ever be out of sight if Christ doesn't take them. That's the point. And I like honesty, and I like the way this hymn is honest about this. And it's celebratory in that we have deliverance because of what God provides in Christ. We have rest. We have true comfort and true joy. Because Jesus comes in human flesh to rescue us. He didn't come just to to say, oh, how cute and adore," and just talk in general terms. He came to save us. Verse 1 and verse 3 is very, very pointed about what he's saving us from. Verse 1, to save us. All from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Then in the third verse, it says, To free all those who trust in him, that is Christ, from Satan's power and might. Under Satan's power, that's us. We were gone astray? Well, Let's consider going astray for a moment. The hymn says, when we were gone astray, speaking of all of us. The hymn is exactly right, biblically. That's exactly what the scripture teaches, no matter how good we may feel at any given time. The third chapter of Romans, Paul says, and this is among other places, he says most clearly, though, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't stop there, though. Because of our sin, there's a terrible, terrible price that has to be paid. Paul says later in the same book, for the wages of sin, that is, what you get for sin, is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin his death. What, what is this reference to? Well, it goes right back to the very beginning, the first sin. When Adam and Eve eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, listen to what God says and tells them before they do this. God warns them, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You won't just get sick, you won't just get injured, you won't get harmed in just a a superficial way, you'll die. And that's exactly what happened. When they rebelled against God, their soul died immediately, estranged from God, and their body slowly but surely followed suit over years. They were intended to live forever, but yet their bodies followed uh, in connection with their soul, and they died eventually earthly deaths. But they died spiritual deaths immediately upon that rebellion. The wages of sin is death. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The hymn is right. He came to save us from Satan's power when we were gone astray, when we sinned. And this is the significance uh, that we can see in Matthew 1, verses 20 and 20 to 23 that I started this sermon with. When it is said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Notice closely, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he, will save his people from their sins. The profundity of that statement, that he would tell, the angel would tell Joseph that he would take the task of fathering this child. Uh, he would act as this child's earthly father. And you know, for all the aspirations I have for my kids, and I know you all have them too, when you hold your little babies, and new babies have just been born, you think of all the things that will happen. You don't know specifically, but you do think about, what is their future to be like? And for the uh, the angel to tell Joseph that, The job of this one is to save his people from their sins. Just how heavy that would be. That's how heavy the problem was. So I say to you, my brothers and sisters, let us have our parties. We're going to have a great one on Wednesday. I hope you come. Let us roast chestnuts, although I would rather put them in the microwave. You wet them for a while, and then you put them in and cut them a little, and they won't blow up. It's better than roasting them. Go ahead, roast them. Exchange gifts. Wear a Santa hat if you want. Drink a little eggnog. Make merry. But let us not do so without seriously contemplating the gravity of this fact. Our freedom from sin and its penalty cost a great price. And that little baby in uh, that manger at that time it was said of him to his uh, father-to-be. He will save his people from their sins. That's why he's here. That is what produces and celebrates this reality. Tidings of comfort and joy. It's not just happy... Warm, fuzzy feelings. Comfort, true comfort and true joy coming from the freedom from our sins that we get that we've been given by the baby who was born who would eventually live and die for us. Look at the second verse as it continues. Really, it starts to introduce now uh, the announcement to the shepherds in particular. Kind of those ordinary Joes like you and I. For God, our Heavenly Father, a blessed angel came from God. And unto certain shepherds brought tidings of the same how that in Bethlehem was born the Son of God by name. So uh, secondarily, he speaks to these ordinary guys out in the field tending their flocks uh, in a similar way that he came to Joseph. Joseph it was more personal because it would be the child he would raise, uh, but to the shepherds in a similar way. Brought tidings of the same. that in Bethlehem was born the Son of God by name. God chooses to tell the most unlikely people first. I've been able to visit the maternity ward many times, in this church especially. And many more times, from what I can tell, by roses here and other people uh, who will be having children. And there, have been more than, there has been more than one occasion where I was there and someone who I did not even know went out of their way to tell me that they had just had a baby. Usually it's a father. They'll tell me, they'll see me standing there waiting to get into a room and someone will come by and you can see kind of this, this, this they're trying to hide the smile but they can't. And fathers, you've been there, you know what that, you just want to tell someone. It doesn't matter if they're going to forget as soon as you tell them or won't remember, but you just got to tell someone. There's a certain sense in which when Jesus comes to earth, there's this sense where God the Father is just going to tell people, and he he picks, of all people, these guys that are tending their flocks by night, in the middle of the night, in the dark sky, there's normal people, ordinary people, no major influence, and he tells them, certain shepherds, tells them. Common, simple shepherds, Luke 2, 8 and 9. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. Talk about a, a normally relatively boring job. You'd think they'd fend off wild animals all the time, but the fact is, when a shepherd's with his flocks, the human scent alone of the shepherd was enough to keep most predators away. They really didn't have to deal with as many predators as you might think. They had a pretty boring job for the most part. So, minding their own business, and then out of nowhere in the sky, they can see this message for because of the the lack of the hustle and bustle of the city and the lights that the track from the heavenly lights they can see first and from this an angel of the lord appeared to them and the glory of the lord shone around them and they were filled with fear and wouldn't you be too in fact any time an angel ever shows up or god's presence is known it's always scary Thankfully, listen to what the angel said. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day. Unto us? Unto you this day. The city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Angel literally means messenger. And we know from this context that we're talking about those heavenly messengers, specially created by God, to be his servants of worship, praise, and message-bearing. The second verse kind of stops with this message given and then picks up again in the third verse where we have the answer right from the scripture, at least the first part, fear not, fear not, said the angel. The third verse continues, let nothing you affright this day is born a savior of a pure virgin bright to free all those who trust in him from Satan's power and might. Remember that the promise of Messiah, the one who would come to defeat the devil, comes thousands of years before this fulfillment took place immediately after the sin that i referred to earlier that cost us all as we sin in adam immediately after that god responds with a gospel message gospel didn't start in the gospel of john it started as an announcement in genesis chapter 3 so what comes about in Bethlehem in the first century was forecasted for thousands of years before genesis three fifteen. i will put enmity between you and the woman And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. First century Bethlehem. Now, after all this time, the seed of the woman was born. In fact, if all the themes you can track in Scripture, one of the most interesting is the seed. From the time that it is forecasted that the woman would eventually bear a seed that would crush the head of the serpent, which is a picture of Jesus on the cross, uh, who is wounded himself, but he crushes the head of the serpent, kills him in his work in that activity, in that action. That picture starts in Genesis 3, and the seed that would eventually bring forth Messiah, you can track all the way through the whole Bible, from the Old Testament all the way through. Israel's main purpose was to bring forth the seed from the tribe of Judah, and then the seed comes, and the seed is here. The promise is fulfilled. Now, I want to address one component of of this hymn that is mentioned twice. Two verses mention Satan, his particular power, his might over us it's important to talk about today because there's a lot of imbalance about this on one hand we can act like satan's not real like he's not he's not really existent he's just kind of like a, a mythological creature that's not biblical clearly he's a personage we actually get quite a bit of info on him on the other hand you have other movements that kind of teach this idea that that satan is addressing every individual believer and his, one of his demons might be if not him and and as a result you need to learn how to fend off the demons and actually talk or speak to satan and cast him out And I'd say that both of those represent extremes we've got to avoid because they're not scriptural. Let's consider for a moment, because Satan and his legacy of sin have continued to assail the church from the beginning. Do you know that Satan has more names than anyone else in the Bible? His multiple titles betray his multifaceted approaches to attacking Christ in the church. Listen uh, to some of the titles. Abaddon, the accuser, the adversary, the angel of the bottomless pit, Apollyon, Beelzebub, Belial the god of this age, a murderer, a liar, prince of demons, the prince of the power of the air, ruler of darkness, ruler of this world, the serpent of old, the wicked one, the father of lies, an angel of light, Lucifer, the devil, and of course, Satan. Let's just say that he is an angelic being that existed before us. Uh, He rebelled against God. We know this from brief brief references in the scripture, and we know that he is extremely powerful, far more powerful than any of us physically. But intellectually, he is as well. Even if we were both created at the same time, it's likely that an angel would have more insight than we would if God reveals it. The fact, though, is for thousands of years he has been in existence, whereas you and I have not been around that long. And the years of his existence alone heap upon him more and more wisdom and knowledge than you and I could ever have. It is foolhardy to tell a person to go take on Satan themselves. That is utter foolishness. You go to Jesus if you've got a problem with Satan. Now, Think about this in terms of uh, the reality of it. All these years, a few years ago, well, it's been a while now, uh, many years ago, I remember seeing a debate between Ronald Reagan and Walter Mondale. It's been a while. But I remember it because it was the first time in my life I could start to understand what they were debating and arguing. I remember seeing them argue, and I remember Mondale, not him, but one of the the questioners, were starting to uh, pick at the fact that Reagan was older, 20 years older than Mondale at the time. Do you remember what Reagan said in response? I will not let the youth and inexperience of my opponent come into play in this campaign. (laughs) I think that was a wonderful way to express what years produce. Maybe physically frailer, but certainly not less wise. And we need to be honest about the wiles of one who has been in existence for thousands of years. No human being can match that. Now, having said that, Satan is not omnipresent. I want to be clear, he is not omnipresent. People talk all the time like, Satan made me do this, or Satan's really attacking me. Probably not. He can only be at one place at one time. And there's six billion people on the earth, and as important as you and I are, my guess is that Satan, Lucifer himself, probably has not spent particular time with you or I. Maybe, but probably not. He could have, because I think he's a person the Bible teaches it, but probably not strategically. There's a few people up the pecking order. Now, he has thousands of demons. So it's possible, more possible, that demonic Uh, a crossing could happen between us and them no question but the main influence satan has had is the legacy of sin that he produced if you will humanly speaking in the garden when he lies and convinces adam and eve to fall essentially so his legacy of sin starts there and has snowballed ever since yes he's still personally there i'm not saying to ignore but be honest about this fact he's not omnipresent he's not omniscient he doesn't know everything and he's not omnipotent he's not god But he's got power and might greater than us and the vestige of satan the sin that remains we deal with on a regular basis in fact there are three main enemies you have right the devil the flesh and the world so if you were hypothetically to take satan out of the picture we'd still be in a world of trouble because our sinful flesh satan's legacy still remains and we're still in this world made up of other sinful people So keep these things in perspective, but recognize the truth of the statement, ultimately, that God is freeing us in Christ from Satan and his legacy of sin, that has encaptured us all, enslaved us all. Tozer said it well, that the devil is a better theologian than any of us, and is still the devil. To free us from Satan's power. How does this happen? It says very clearly, more clearly in this verse than in the first verse, to free all those who trust in him, in Christ. That is, Christ is our advocate, who get behind Jesus, if you will. It's Jesus who saves us from Satan's power and might. And it's by trusting in him and his completed, finished work on the cross, his crushing of the head of Satan, that saves us. The hymn doesn't advocate some kind of universalism. Rather, a person must trust Christ in order to be free from satan's clutches now let's consider verse three and then verse four allow me to read so we can consider two points of biblical accuracy that i'd like to point out verse four the shepherds at those tidings rejoiced much in mind and left their flocks of feeding in tempest storm and wind and went to bethlehem straightway the son of god to find now two points of biblical accuracy noting this is a hymn this is not inspired writ like the scriptures the scriptures are so we compare them and notice that in the third verse that i read just a moment ago Uh, it mentions the angel saying to the shepherds, this day is born a savior of a pure virgin bright. Now, we are not told specifically that the shepherds were given that particular information, that Mary was a virgin. Now, we can understand that if they had any knowledge of the prophecies, which I'm guessing they did, they would understand this to be so. But as a point of technicality, uh, the hymn takes a bit of uh, liberality with this notion. Nevertheless, the angels... uh, do give very important information that encourages them to go and see the baby. Also now then in the fourth verse, you'll see that the hymn contends that the shepherds left their flocks a feeding in tempest, storm, and wind. Now the text of scripture doesn't say that either. Uh, surely the point of the hymn is to describe the excitement and the haste they made to go see Jesus. We can't lose that, and that's really the spirit of it. But it's doubtful that they just dropped their staffs and headed off to Bethlehem and left their sheep out there. Because they returned back after, if you recall. And what do they return to if they just left them out there in the tempest? So the hymn spirit is understood, and we recognize it. But technically, that's not exactly what was said to them. What was said to them is powerful enough, because it comes from God. Hear that account again in, in that light. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, We have before us a wonderful hymn that gets the focus right. I want to conclude by reading uh, for you a wonderful uh, short devotional written by Wilfred McRae who writes for the Touchstone Journal which is a a document written in the memory of C.S. Lewis and really in the vein of Lewis's writing. Uh, Wilfred McRae writes wonderfully about this particular hymn. This year God, rest ye merry gentlemen, has stuck in my brain and particularly these words in the first verse. To save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. We move through these brilliant words so quickly and rhythmically that I know I always have. And yet, how plainly those few words sketch in a somber background a whole universe of presuppositions without which the song has a very different and diminished meaning. The merriness being urged upon the gentleman comes amid a great darkness. A darkness that never disappears, that beckons and threatens. A darkness whose presence is subtly conveyed by the minor key with which the song begins and ends. The black ship with black sails lingers on the far horizon, silent and waiting. There are constant reminders of this darkness, if one has ears to hear them, running through the great liturgy of the Christmas carols with their memorable evocations of bleak midwinter, snow on snow, sad and lonely plains, the curse, the half-spent night, the spooky and antiseptically sterile depiction of winter in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and you remember what it felt like, and its cinematic adaptations. In that sense, very close to the spirit of the older carols and to the biblical account of the matter, much closer than the hearty merriment of rosy cheeked seasonal songs like Sleigh Ride Or let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. The older lyrics are laced with just such evocations of darkness. They help us remember why it is symbolically right, notice what he says, why it's symbolically right, even if historically wrong, to celebrate Christ's birth in winter. We are constantly reminded to keep Christ in Christmas and to remember the reason for the season. And of course we should. But if I may be permitted to put it this way, we must also keep Satan in Christmas and not skip too lightly over the lyrics that mention him. For he and the forces he embodies are an integral part of the story. It utterly transforms the way we understand Christmas in our world when we also hold in our minds a keen awareness of the darkness into which Christ came and still must come for our sake. Later, and God rest you, merry gentlemen. The visiting angel tells the shepherds in the field that Christ has come to free all those who trust in him from Satan's power and might. Being subject to that power and might is, as we are likely to put it in these days, the default setting of our human existence. But the Christmas story plays havoc with all such defaults. It reveals the recognized, normal, and settled features of our world to be something very different the ruins and after-effects of the great and ancient calamity, the tokens of a disordered order. It lifts the veil of illusion about who we are and what we are to be, to be made, uh, made to be, which means that the comfort and joy of which the song speaks are not merely outbursts of seasonal gelidity. Finally, he says, they bespeak the ecstatic gratitude of captives and cripples who recognize that In and through Christ, the entire cosmos has been transformed and their lives have been made new. Nothing could ever be the same again. The darkness does not go away, not now, not yet, but the light that shines into it can make even the bleakest midwinter into a landscape glistening with promise. So may it be for each of us this and every Christmas. Again, brothers and sisters, the application of this hymn's message comes mainly in the form of contemplation and will hopefully affect the way we live because lives of gratitude for what God has done for us in Christ are different lives altogether. They're lives that they can sing tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy, tidings of comfort, true comfort and true joy. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, these reminders as penned in this hymn uh, of what scripture teaches. Thank you for our just the joy, the comfort we can truly have knowing our sins are forgiven. Lord, help us not to lose that in the midst of all that goes on. Lord, help us to uh, enjoy the times we have together with each other and with family and friends. But Lord, may the, the, the kernel of that enjoyment and fellowship be Christ and the forgiveness of our sins that we have because of him. Lord, may that be what causes us to be merry and let us rest in that. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Very appropriately, let's turn to 211.